I'm not governed by the fear of what other people say. You've got to open your heart. Well, number one, he's one of the elite offensive players in the game. What is leadership like in today's football world? Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Not Another Philly Sports Talk Show. This is Mike Sealski in his faux sportscaster voice, joined Decent. by Jonathan Tannenwald, our intrepid producer here in the studio and via Skype, uh, Dave Murphy from the Philadelphia Daily News. Murph, what's up? Not much. I was very impressed by your elocution. That I, you know, I've been working on it. I, I, the rumor is Chris Berman is is going to retire at the end of this year, and my goal is to uh, to be the play by play guy for next year's home run derby on right. ESPN. So, I want you to do something for me, actually. Uh, just stand by your phone because I'm going to send you a picture of the, of the setup that I'm working with. Okay. Okay. Uh, but anyway, carry on. Okay. Tweet, tweet it out so that we can show it. Yeah, to exactly. Um, okay. Maybe we'll Snapchat it. I think that's something we ought to we ought to think about doing is is Snapchatting this show. Anyway, um, we want to get going with the Phillies um, building on the baseball thing because um, you know Tuesday night was the All Star game. Uh, you get the the mini break in the middle of the season. Uh, Murph wrote an interesting column uh, for today Wednesday that's uh, on Philly dot com now about kind of what we know about the Phillies and and what we you know what we might expect moving forward. You know, are they going to move? Uh, guys like uh, John Margona Gomez, um, you know, is Michael Franco really uh, the player we've seen over the last couple of weeks? Is he kind of out of the slump? What do we think of Odubel Herrera and the trends that uh, the many trends that he's been on throughout the season? Um, Murph, I feel like because the Phillies have exceeded expectations in this first half, they're six games under 500. They get off to that great start and and then fell back to earth, and now have kind of stabilized a little bit. Um, and because things were so bleak a year ago and they've done a pretty good job of kind of, um, writing themselves and getting themselves on what's perceived to be, uh, a full fledged upswing, uh, in, in the idea that they will be even better, a little bit better next year and maybe a little bit better a year after that. Um, who are these guys really? And is, is there any possibility, um, you know, as we see more of these young guys who are in the system now, not necessarily on the big league roster, get assimilated into the major league roster, guys like J.P. Crawford, Nick Williams, you know, assuming he's running hard to first base again. Uh, Is it, is it really just, you know, sky's the limit now and everybody should expect things to get better and better, or is there a possibility for a step backward and Hey, let's, let's pump the brakes on, um, you know, how good the Phillies are going to be, you know, and how quickly they're going to be that good. I think what you're seeing right now, is that they're very much a product, for better or for worse, over the course of the first half of their schedule. Um, I came to that conclusion looking at this most recent run of, I think it's 23 and 5, they are 23 of 28, whatever, whatever this, and especially this last, these last couple weeks. Now, of course, there was that sweep in, in San Francisco, and that was a great series, but um, I think more than anything, what they've established in the first half of this season is that they're better. They're the best of the worst teams. Does that make sense? It does. It does. They're in that um, position a lot sooner than I think anybody thought they'd be. Well, I mean, I you know, I don't I don't want to I don't want to uh, deflect too much credit, but um, I had them at seventy five oh, wins before it. the season, and I believe that would be about the pace that they're on right now. Um, you know, I think that I think that anybody before the season who looked at this this roster and, and thought that they were going to be as bad as, as the Rockies or the Reds or, or some of these other teams. I think they were uh, kind of buying into the narrative that's, that's been peddled about the Phillies these last couple of years. I mean, th- this team has, um, you know, some talent on it. This isn't the Astros of, of 55 wins three years ago or four years ago. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, look, it, 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 once we got to the, once, now that we're at the all-star break and it's kind of why I wrote this, this little reset um, in addition to kind of, catching myself up on some things after some weeks of vacation. Um, you know, I think we're seeing, you know, when you look up and down the roster, up, other than Aaron Nolan, I'm not sure that his struggles are even out of the blue, given that he's so young. Um, you know, you pretty much are getting everything that you've expected um, out of everybody. A little bit more out of Adubo Herrera, although not nearly as much more as, as in the first, you know, couple months of the season. And, and you know, Michael Franco, I think, is the guy that kind of typifies this team. Um, 
you know, if you were to have asked me what would be reasonable expectations, you know, for his his batting line and his home run totals at the All Star break, I think it would be exactly what he's got right now, like an 820 OPS, 320 on base percentage, hitting the crap out of the ball when he does connect. Um, you know, but but very streaky and and again somewhat a product of the parks that he plays and the pitchers that he faces. Um, you know, and also just kind of the natural ebbs and flows of of you know, a season, um, you know, probably, you know, a few more home runs, but I don't think 18, you know, is out of the question. Everybody knew this guy had 30 home run power, but, uh, you know, pretty much everybody else is, is right where you thought, um, they would be unless I'm mistaken. Am I missing somebody? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, I think Peter Borjos has been, you know, Jekyll and Hyde sort of thing, but I think in, you know, in the aggregate, he's the player who I think we thought he was going to be, um, you know, very good defensively, you know, a bad average offensively, um, and it's just, it's only recently that you know because he's been so hot that he's gotten to that point. Um, so yeah, I, there's nobody else who stands out to me other than Nola from the you know Nola from the nosedive um, over his last few starts, and um, you know th- that's that's really been it from my end. There's nobody else who's jumped out at me and gone, oh wow, um, you know in the overall, I, I didn't see that coming from that guy. I, I think the one exception would be um, Herrera's early. Uh, recognition of the strike zone and patience of the plate. I mean, he made such a quantum leap early on in that regard um, that that was surprising. But as you pointed out in the column, you know, that's that's even that's kind of leveled out lately. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, that what you're seeing out of this team, um, you know, is a team that's kind of where it's going to be. You know, I want you know, it wouldn't shock me if they lose 10 in a row at some point in the second half. And it won't shock me if they, you know, put another little stretch like this together i mean a lot's going to depend on you know what they decide to do uh with some of those players you mentioned at the trade deadline you know i for one i don't think they're at a point in time where they should necessarily be trading a guy like john mar gomez just because and i'm not sure that he's going to get them more right. value on the the trade market than he will bring back to them keep in mind he's got another year of control and he's a very valuable guy back there even if you know, he ends up coming back down to earth a little bit as a closer. I mean, this guy has been a huge, hugely valuable component of this team over the past year just because he is so durable, um, so unflappable when he first strikes. Um, and that, when you have, you know, when you have a guy like Aaron Nola, uh, Jared Eikhoff, Jameson, perhaps even. You want to have some flexibility, um, you know, to get some length out of your bullpen, um, you know, to, to have guys who can kind of shoulder, you know, to kind of be your be subverted, if you will, uh, while the young guys kind of get the compete in, in a vacuum, in a, in a controlled environment as much as possible, anyway, on the major league level. So, you know, I, I, I think I, I won't be surprised this is the same team we see down the stretch. Maybe, you know, I think. Dave, your your Skype connection is somewhat less durable than Janar Gomez here. So, Murph, 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 Dave, yeah, we're having a tough time yeah. hearing you. Um, so check in your Skype connection. Um, and then I'm I'm going to ask a question that that maybe Mike can answer while you get under the hood or whatever you need to do. J.P. Crawford, top prospect in the Philly system one of the very top prospects in all of Major League Baseball at this point. What are the service time implications and all those things for, for when he would get to the majors? Uh, well, I mean, he's, you know, he's a young kid. He's, what, 21, 22. Um, so the question becomes, you know, I mean, look, I, I, think, I think service time at this point with respect to Crawford is less important um, than it might have once been in that the, the jump between, like for instance, the service time issue came up about 10 years ago with the Phillies uh, with respect to Chase Utley and Ryan Howard. And part of the reason it came up was because the Phillies at that time had sought out and acquired and had in place viable, competent, even excellent alternatives to them. They had Placido Polanco at second base. They had Jim Tomey at first base. Um, so those guys, you know, and, and there was this mandate of you got to win now. We're moving into a new ballpark. So the idea of like getting the ball rolling on Chase Utley and Ryan Howard, while I'm sure there were, you know, 
cost-related reasons for them to keep those, you know, guys like Utley and Howard in the minor leagues, there were also reasons for them to, you know, for, from pure baseball standpoint and, and uh, ticket-selling standpoint to keep them in the minor leagues and play Polanco and Tomey. Um, the gap between who Crawford is supposed to be and what he's supposed to be as a player and Freddie Galvis and Cesar Hernandez is wide enough and the anticipation of Crawford is so great, I think, at this point amongst the public, and I think within the organization, too, that I'm not sure that's going to be an issue. I think if if Crawford, or at least as big an issue, if Crawford's playing well at AAA, and he has been lately, I think they're going to want to see him. They're going to want to get him up here um, because even JP, you know, they're still at the stage where he's going to need to learn on the job at the major league level, and that's valuable, you know, to, and they're at the stage where they need him to do that, and they can afford to have him do that. Maybe Murph disagrees with me, but that's kind of where I come down with it. It's Murph just Murph's call just dropped, so ah, we'll call of course. Back. So we'll, we'll never know. Him, if we'll Murph- call <laughs> we're, we're, we pretend that it's live radio here on the podcast, so uh, I will pause the show and call him back. All right, we're back. We think we've fixed the Gremlins as best we can. Dave, we're talking about J.P. Crawford and service time, and Mike was talking about how you know the the fans want to see him. He has the impression the organization wants to see him. And I'm wondering what you're hearing about whether the organization is is ready to bring him up. I think at this point, there's really no reason to bring him up until, um, you know, you're assured. I I haven't looked at the service time closely, um, but I mean, that's what the issue is. Uh, There's no reason. um, There's no reason to bring him up until September. Um, Like, what's it going to do? I mean, has he been pairing it up that much? No, I, I, my point, I agree with you. My point is th- that, uh, you know, John was asking with respect to the idea of um, the perception and or reality that the Phillies in the past have kind of, um, you know, guys like Utley and Howard who could have come up earlier um, and didn't because at the time they had, you know, players in place like Placido Polanco and Jim Tomey. Um, and there was the perception that the Phillies were going to keep those guys in the minors to for the service time reason to keep costs down. My feeling is the situation is different now. Of course, you know, you bring Crawford up in September to see what he's got, and then because the gap between what he's supposed to be and what Freddie Galvis and Cesar Hernandez are is so great, and because of the stage they're in in terms of, you know, rebuilding and getting back to where they want to be, um, you know, there would be no reason, like it, it, the service time argument would be, lesson than it once was. No, it's not just the Phillies either. Chris Bryant filed a grievance against the Cubs over right. it. Everybody does it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, there's two separate issues when it comes to service time. I mean, the one is simply um, um, free agency. And, and that shouldn't, I guess that shouldn't be a problem at this point. Uh, you know, it wasn't when they brought Michael Franco up. Uh, I think they brought him up in what, June? You know, as long as, you know, they've already... Uh, Assuming J.P. Crawford, whenever he gets up here, stays here uh, for the rest of his career, then, uh, you know, the service time is no longer uh, an issue. I mean, the one thing they, I mean, I guess the one thing they could do is keep him, um, not bring him up at all this year, um, and then wait as, as the Cubs do with, Cub, uh, with Chris Bryant, you know, a month into next year. Um, you know, but I, I'm not sure that's, I'm not sure that's the route they would go. Um, you know, what are his numbers lately at, at have you have you looked? I'll, I'll get him up. Yeah, he'd been hitting. He'd been hitting better lately. I know that. Um, you know, and it kind of it seemed like it kind of stabilized himself. Um, you know, he got off to such a slow start there. Um, I mean, like let's take Nick Williams for example, because it, you know J.P. Crawford. I guess is, is the thing with J.P. Crawford is he plays by all accounts he plays shortstop at a, at a high enough level that you know he can hold down a spot um, in the majors while he. While he finds his bat. Um, Here we go. J.P. No, Crawford know. hitting 270 with a 703 OPS at uh, in yeah, 47 I mean, games at Lehigh Valley. Yeah, I mean that's not. It's not like he's tearing up, right? Um, you know, Triple A. I mean, there's still some question. Look, like this guy has, still has some things that he can work on. I mean, this is not. This is not even Michael Franco. I mean, Michael Franco was. There was little doubt by the time they so we called him up that he was a finished product. He was going to be the hitter, um, you know, in the 
he had no more development really to do. He was not going, there was nothing he was going to develop. He wasn't suddenly be, going to become a patient hitter at AAA for long as he stayed down there. He was essentially just biding his time. J.P. Crawford, I'm not sure. I'm 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 not sure that's the case with J.P. Crawford. I mean, the, the, the guy has essentially been the same hitter all the way through the minor leagues. Um, you know, again, that's only three years, but he could really stand to 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 work on you know developing some some that power. Um, you know, driving the ball. I mean, he's always his strength has always been, you know, his his uh, you know his base running ability and and more than anything his ability to get on base. I mean, he's a very patient hitter. You know. He's always had right around the same number of walks and strikeouts, you know, in his career. But for him to be, you know, he's got a chance. The Phillies would love for him to be not just a, you know, solid 10-year starter at shortstop, but a superstar. Right. And, you know, 703 OPS is not a superstar. That's not a superstar, superstar yeah. And while I haven't seen him in in minor league numbers are not, you know, everything, it, it is an indication that, you know, there are, Working on driving the ball is something very real that a kid can work on um, when he's down, you know, in the Myers. And I think that, um, you know, at this point, there, there there isn't a case necessarily that the Phillies are keeping him down here just for service time reasons. No, you're right. I mean, Cesar Hernandez has more than a 703 OPS at the major league level. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it, I, my only point was the service time, like, the service time is not a reason that they're going to keep him down there. It's going to be for the reasons no, you but, said. But, but it's a reason not to rush. Like right, is, it's a reason there, not to rush him. Right, right. Like I, and now I'm thinking with regards to not bringing him up at all. I mean, if you, now again, like the free agency, the free agency, the free agency thing is a very big deal. I feel Franco was brought up early enough where, you know, they, so you knew they were not going to be able to keep him in the minors all year. There's no reason to keep him in the minors all year. Um, and thus, there was no way they were going to milk another year of control out of them. With J.P. Crawford, if, if the question is, um, you know, he, he can't be any worse, if the uh, equivalency is, is that he can't be any worse than Freddie Galvis, so we might as well throw him up here and, and let him learn, you know, on the big league level. I'm not, sure that's, I'm not sure that's a reason to bring him up. You know, if that's the case, leave him down there. Uh, you know, maybe bring him up in September and, and start him, you know, in the minors next year and then bring him up in June, and all of a sudden, He's on the team control for, you know, what, for whatever, for 2023 instead of 2022. And I know now, six years before that, it, it doesn't seem like a big deal. But trust me, it's, you know, imagine if the Phillies had another year out of Jason Works. No, you're right. I'm, I'm, I'm not arguing with any of that. All I'm saying is... And that, I'm, not argue, I'm yeah. not arguing with you. Yeah. Uh, I'm, all I'm saying is... That, for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, uh, that the situation that they're in now is different from the one where they, you know, 10 years ago or whatever the case was, where, you know, the last time they really had a number of promising young position players. Um, and so yeah. the dynamic is different. You know, while you're right, yeah, there's there's no difference. Um, you know, at this point, leave Galvis and Hernandez out there. They're more productive at the major league level than, than Crawford is being at AAA. Um, by the same token, if Crawford manages to do those things, there's no, you know, and, and take the strides that they need him to take, there's no reason then... There's less of a reason, I should say, to um, to keep him down there um, because no, if, if, if he shows that he's ready and if they feel that he's ready, I think that they will bring him up. Um, again, I, I wouldn't think it would be until after the trade deadline, but I, I think that they'll bring him up, and I think that that you know it will be the right move. And, and like you said, um, you know, there's there's every month in the major leagues is value for a kid, and, and yeah, they should definitely look to do it. But they're not going to bring him up. My point is, they're not going to bring him up until they feel like. He's ready to be here to right. stay, right? Uh, unless it's a September call-up, and you know, until he gets to that point, until they don't have any doubt about whether he's ready, you know, there's there's no. There, I, I kind of look at it the flip side is there's no reason to rush him at this point. I mean, what's he going to do? Sell a few more tickets, you know, in <laughs> September and April? Um, you know, I think that that um, you know, not to sound like them because I hate it when they say this, but the, I think he'll he'll let them know when he's ready. And once he does, I don't think that service time, you know, I don't think mm-hmm. service time is a reason to keep him down there. I just, I just think that there are service time implications and it's a reason not to rush him up. Because the argument you always hear is, well, why not just bring him up? You know, he can't get any worse. You know, he'll learn. Well, like there are, so that's where the service time implications come in, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Bob Rickover, uh, our colleague at the com, wrote um, an interesting piece for, for Wednesday in which he, uh, kind of talked about the the 
increase in power and productivity of the Phillies lineup and throughout Major League Baseball this year, um, and then kind of you know, uh, you know, cycled it ahead, thinking about okay, you know, you have guys at Reading who are tearing the cover off the ball. You know, Reading is playing 700 baseball. You know, are the Phillies? Can the Phillies get back to uh, the kind of team, or at least close to the kind of team they were when they were winning the World Series? Which, you know, for all the ballyhoo over uh, the Big Four in 2011. You know, they had a heck of a lot of success in 2007, 8, and 9 before they had an elite starting rotation when they were Howard, Utley, Worth, Burl, and, you know, Shane Victorino with some pop, Jimmy Rollins with some pop, and they were they were kind of, you know, beating teams up in Citizens Bank Park. What, what do you make of that? Is it is it too early to kind of extrapolate that out? Do you see, um, you know, a, a broader trend in Major League Baseball that, either makes it smart to, to try to go that route or, or, you know, is a factor we should take into consideration. I mean, what, what kind of team do you see the Phillies becoming? Is it, is it one, are they going to be one that is completely balanced, that is going to win games in the backs of their rotation like they did in 2011, or is it going to be something closer to 07, 08, or 09 where they just, you know, they pound teams? I don't know. I mean, I think it's, I think it's, a too early, and, I, and B, I don't know if that's necessarily relevant. Um, you know, I think that this, I mean, I guess I'm kind of a reductionist, but, you know, I, it's, it's going to come down to a bunch of, it's going to come down to 25 decisions on who the best guy for that spot is. Um, you know, I don't think that there's, there's any use in trying to be something that you're not. I, I think the team, I think whatever happens, happens. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that, that at this point, you know, I think at this point they're just going to build the best team that they can with the parts as they express themselves, you know, over these next few years. And, and I think it's too early to even know how those parts will express themselves. I mean, Crawford's a great example. Mm-hmm. Like, what's he going to be? Is he going to be, I mean, there's a big difference, you know, there's a big difference if he's Abdul Herrera versus um, Jimmy Rollins versus, you know, Derek Jeter versus Alex mm-hmm. Rodriguez. You know, I mean, you know, they, the future is still very much unwritten for him. And, I think I think you you kind of I mean with baseball there's just like not a, to me there's just not a lot of like macro strategy um, involved unless you're talking about you know trading some of your young pitchers for some young hitters mm-hmm. um, and still at that point I think it's it's it all comes down to the market you know I mean look I would be out there at the deadline this year I, I wrote today Hector Neris but I'd even be you know shopping Eikhoff around and 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 um, you know Eflin around and if you can get you know, I, I always go back to, to me, the single biggest move the Cubs made, you know, and again, they made a ton of great ones and they got a lot of luck too, but the single greatest move they made and the move that really kind of cemented their, their future turned out to be trading, you know, a young, high, very highly regarded pitcher, uh, pitching prospect named Andrew Kashner for a young, uh, highly regarded power hitting prospect named Anthony Rizzo. Right. Um, you know, and I, you know, I don't think, I don't think, the cut, you know, I don't think COFC necessarily did that thinking, um, you know, we're going to be a power hitting team instead of a pitching team. I think he looked at it and said, man, if I can get, you know, if I can get this, this guy who, I, who our scouts really like and who I really like and who the metrics really like, if I can get him for a pitcher who, who has already had some durability concerns, um, you know, I'm going to take that. You know, I don't like, put it like a, pow, a, a hitter like Anthony Rizzo to me is always going to be very, is always going to be, uh, more valuable than you know the equivalent at a starting pitcher. Sure. Because, again, a pitcher pitches once every yep. five days, and, and there's just such a premium. There's it, it's such a there's such a dearth of power hitting prospects at this point that you know that's where you go. But at the same time, you're not going to trade you know an Anthony Rizzo you know the Anthony Rizzo of pitching prospects for say a Nick Williams or a Jorge Alfaro just because they can hit home runs. Right. You know because they're they're you know they've got way more chance of falling on their faces. Does that make sense? I mean, I think no, I, it does. It, it it does. A, to me, it's going to be a, a you know, tit for tat by tit for tat type of thing. Yeah, no, you're right. And, and, you know, even in the analogy of the, the teams that, um, you know, the, that, like we talked about the 07, 08, 09 Phillies, I mean, they didn't go, Pat Gillick and, and before him, Ed Wade didn't go into that saying, well, we're going to build our team around power. They didn't sign Jason Worth. Right saying, whoa, we, we just got a guy who lit 27 to 33 homers every year. They, they signed a guy they took a chance on who they thought had talent and it had, you know, wrist, trob- wrist problems. Can I object yeah, I mean, on one small grounds to that? Go ahead, John, go ahead. 
Uh, I have one small objection to that is which they build a ballpark on power. Yeah, but they didn't. Yeah, but like, Go ahead. To me, the ballpark, ballpark thing, to me, the ballpark thing has always been way overblown because both teams play in that park. And guess what? I watched um, them lose two playoff series in that park against teams who were not necessarily built for that park. So, uh, you know, again, like like a power hitter is valuable. I mean, Marlins Park is not a, a hitter's park. Um, you know, and that team is very much built on power right now. Uh, I, I don't, you know, I don't know. I, I just don't know that that's, I don't know how relevant the, the comp- composition of your lineup to your park necessarily is, unless you're talking about a place like Colorado, um, you know, where, where the outfield is so big and, and the numbers are so skewed. You know, I think in some of the more, I mean, one of the misnomers is that Citizens Bank Park is an extreme hitters park. It's really not. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a home, it's, it's, you know, to an extent, a home run hitters park. But when you look at the park factors and you look at the home runs, and even if you just look at the way games express themselves, uh, you know, I sound like Chip Kelly, by the way. I don't know why <laughs> they express, express themselves. I, I really like it. Though. I like to look uh, at the way you express yourself, Murph. Well, well thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I just don't know that the, I don't know that the park is, is, is relevant. Because, I mean, you know, they built a rotation that was one of the best in history pitching that park. Yeah, and and like we said, you know, they didn't they didn't build the 08 team. It seems to me with that park in mind, they didn't go out and sign Jason Worth, saying we'll plug him in right field and he will because of Citizens Bank Park will turn into um, a home run hitter. They they didn't draft Pat Burrell in 1998 or whenever they drew, I guess 98, saying well we're moving into a new ballpark. He'll hit 30 home runs a year. They they drafted him thinking he was going to hit 30 home runs no matter where he played. So. Um, I, I, I tend to agree with Mirth. I think the park thing is is a bit overstated. But so, what, so what I was going to say is that that you know the Aaron Nola draft pick is kind of the the and even this draft pick this this past one is kind of an example of how you can't really plan these kinds of things because look like would they have loved for a Chris Bryant to have been there when they drafted Aaron Nola? Sure. Would they have loved um, you know Steven? You know. They had. They ended up. They didn't need a pitcher necessarily, but they they, they picked one, and they picked one that, that doesn't necessarily have the ceiling that you always look for out of the top ten pick. But he was the best pick at that spot. He was a no brainer at that spot, and uh, you know that that's what they did. Yeah. Um, same thing with this. You know, you kept on hearing during, during the run up to this this past draft. Ah, oh, they need. They don't need more pitchers. They don't. They don't need a high school hitter. They need. They need a. Uh, you know, they need a college hitter who can produce within the next three years to get home run. But guess what? You know, I mean, yeah. you, can't, you can't just walk in and go to the, you know, college, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm a big fan of the power hitter aisle at Whole Foods. I, I don't know about you. Yeah. You know, the, the one in the one in Montgomeryville is awesome for that. I find like they have their Giancarlo Stanton's right next to their Anthony Rizzo's right next to their Chris Bryant's. It's all right there for you. I, right. I right next to the chocolate covered at a mommy. I, so, I don't, I don't make know. as much money as the columnists do. So I can't afford to go shopping in the Whole Foods all the time. Mur- Murph, you mentioned Aaron. Yeah, I mean, look at, the, look at this guy. Look at Mike Sealski, Mr. Mr. I go to Aldi. <laughs> <laughs> Murphy, but, I mean, you, the power hitter honestly the power hitter is probably right by like the hundred and I can never find it like I, <laughs> I can never find it like I'm always looking for a light bulb in the, a light bulb in the grocery store and, and I wander around forever trying to find it <laughs> you mentioned Aaron Knoll you know I, I took a picture of this speaking of uh, as a temporary Bucks County uh, resident I uh, I was in the Wegmans on in Warrington <laughs> I think it was the one in Warrington. It might have been. I'm pretty sure it was the one in Warrington. Yeah. Either that or the one in Montgomeryville. But they had the best aisle I've ever seen in a grocery store. And the sign, it had the sign with everything that's on it. And it was pasta, rice, uh, intimate needs, and tampon. See, now, if you're the kind of person who gets intimate with pasta, that sign is redundant. I was like, what? My entire list is checked off. What do I do now? <laughs> uh, anyway. Yeah, anyway. Uh, All right. Yeah, so, I mean, look, like, they can't, like, they, you kept on hearing, ah, they can't draft Jay Groom. He's a high school pitcher. They don't need, they have pitchers and they don't need high school kids. They got, they should draft the kid from Louisville. Uh, you know, the kid from Mercer or Lewis or the kid from Louisville, right? Well, guess what? If your staff can't think that guy's going to be any good, it, it was like the whole notion of, like, the Phillies need to get younger. Well, guess what? They got younger when they got John Mayberry. They just weren't, they didn't get any better, though. You know, I mean, yeah. you kind of have to, 
you can either roll with the punches. Like you can't necessarily pick the identity of your team in baseball, given given the way its talent markets work. Gotcha. You, for the third time, I'm going to try this. Yeah. All right. For the third time, I'm going to try this. You mentioned Aaron Nola. Um, may, maybe this is me, and is you know, it's it is in some ways I think completely irrational, but um, I do have this quote unquote fear a little bit. And, and as I said, maybe this is because I lived through as a kid, Bruce Ruffin and Joe Cowley, who, you know, were promising pitchers, uh, A, when in Ruffin's case, when the Phillies brought him up, and in Cowley's case, when the Phillies acquired him. And they completely, for, for either permanently or for a period of time, lost the ability to throw strikes and to get hitters out. Just lost any sense of the strike zone. And I, I've seen you... You tweeted about this and posted about this about the you know Nola's release point and how it does seem to have been lowered a little bit and that could be leading to um, you know the, how badly he's pitched over the last his last four or five starts. Um, what is your confidence level that uh, Nola comes back and is you know back to the pitcher he was or reasonable proximity you know uh, uh, you know of the pitcher he once was and. You know, tell me. I guess if I were a Phillies fan, tell, again, tell me my my fears that he's another, you know, flame out. Um, you know, are totally unfounded. Well, you know, I, I don't think. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, because because uh, Rothman and whoever the other guy, Joe Cowley, was, was well before my time. Not well before, but but they were '80s guys, right? Yep. I was, I was a I was a '90s guy. Okay. Um, but they're they're. It's not like Nola has lost his command, his uh, his control or his command. Um, yeah, I think he's still throwing strikes. He's just he's he's not his stuff is just not as as explosive to me as it was. And explosive is not a great word because he was never a guy with explosive stuff. But you know, his cur- I, you know, I have to read Metallica, a contest, uh, you know, in Conquest Sports Net, waiting to go on um, Philly Sports Talk a couple weeks ago, and and he was talking about his curveball and how it just looks a little. It just looks less sharp, um, you know, and his fastball does to a degree too. And I, I think that's that's more the issue than anything. So I, I guess what I would say is, as long as he is physically okay, I don't have I don't have any huge long any huge long term concerns about Aaron Nola. Um, at least no more than I would about any other young pitcher. He don't really aside from that uncertainty, uh, you know. I think that he's a guy who could really stand to build his body up. Uh, and I would not, it would not surprise me if what we're seeing right now is just a guy, you know, who is starting to realize the physical demands of, of pitching every five days in the major leagues. I mean, he's a, uh, you know, he's a slight guy. Yeah. You know, he is. I mean, he's, he's just not, he, he doesn't look like he has a great core. You know, he doesn't look like he has a great lower body. Um, you know, I think that an off season for him will be very good if he if he kind of starts eating. I, you know, I don't know. Again, I don't know the guy's training regimen. All I know is what I see with my eyes. Um, and he just still very much looks um, a bit physically immature. Um, and I think that that might be more than anything what we're seeing. I mean, look, this guy this guy's always been a guy who um, needed everything to be working perfectly because he doesn't have that dominant fastball. I mean, uh, you know, most guys in the majors, at least most elite guys, they can get away. They, they all go through these periods where their, their stuff doesn't feel good, their arm doesn't necessarily feel good, their body's not cooperating. Um, I mean, I feel it every day when I wake up, roll out of bed. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, it, takes me, it takes me varying degrees of time just to get out of bed in the morning. So, so, you know, I can't imagine going out and pitching every five days. But most of these guys have fastballs that, um, like, look at Vince Alaska. He's always going to be able to compete in their how his body's feeling because his fastball is close. Explosive. Right. When he loses a tick on that fastball, you know, it just gets battered. Um, you know, he he needs it to be up the knees. He needs it, he needs to be hitting his spot, and he needs to be getting that explosion out of the hand. And that's what I'm not seeing out of him. Everything from him just looks flat right now. So, but as long as it's not, as long as there's not any structural concerns, uh, you know, I I'm not too concerned. I think it's just something he probably needs to work on um, in terms of building up his, his endurance. I mean, you're, you're a big, you're a big guy. What, what do you think about it? I, I, as I said, all of that sounds um, 
reasonable to me. And as as somebody, I mean, I like I have a soft spot for Nola because I, in general, have a soft spot for guys who get hitters out without blowing them away. And it's not that I would pick a guy like an Aaron Nola to start a rotation versus over Vince Velasquez uh, or anything like that. I just I find that fascinating in baseball, um, yeah. you know, and all that. So, but I also am somebody who. You know, as you said, I'm an 80s guy. I'm in excess and you're Nirvana. And so <laughs> I remember... I was actually not a big Nirvana fan. I was more like... Uh, I was actually a big U2 fan back in the okay. 90s. All right. So anyway, the point is, I, I mean, I remember... And, and anybody who grew up a Phillies fan in the late 80s and early 90s, with the exception of 1993, I think, you know, has this kind of trepidation in the back of their mind. So I look at him hitting three hitters in one start and say to myself, okay, is that a question of fatigue or is that a question of um you know something else going on here and i see the way he's getting hit and i wonder okay he's probably never been hit like this before at any level of baseball yes he seems like a kid who's got his head on his shoulders straight and he's smart and does all his homework and all that sort of stuff but does it prey on his mind at all um and like i said it's i mean the hitting the hitting batters thing is, is the big risk i mean you saw like like you saw any extreme when Ray had it I mean, he just couldn't. This was a guy who had always had a command. And all of a sudden, he was throwing the ball back down, but he just didn't know where the ball was going. Um, so, I mean, if that, and if that they had it, if, I mean, if that, that is permanent, but it, it's just so hard to. I, I mean, again, my gut feeling is that he, there's something wrong with him. Mm-hmm. Now, again, whether it's fatigue, whether it's endurance, whether it's just a guy whose body is wearing down, who's not used to the grind, or whether it's something structural. Uh, you know, it's it's always it's always impossible for us to know that. I mean, even with Holiday, they swore nothing was wrong. Yeah, you know? yeah, that's true. But yeah, I mean, the command. Like, I don't think that that he's. I think it's very rare that a pitcher gets the yips, like at least mm-hmm. a starting pitcher like Darren Nola. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, he's just so steady. So he's always been steady. He's always had a mechanic. The mechanics are, are very repeatable. Um, he just doesn't. He just doesn't seem like a guy who all of a sudden is going to start. Um, you know, going. Uh, Rick Ankula. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I think what we need to do is we need to take some of the tuition dollars that are going to be flowing into Temple University and commission yeah. a study of baseball pitchers and why they can't throw strikes and why they hit the wall and maybe their first full season in the big leagues. What do you think, Murph? I think that I think that I, I this whole thing just makes me so angry. Hey, well, standing now, ovation you- transition, Mike. <laughs> Wonderfully done. The reason here's where we're going, so that Murph can collect himself to um, to weigh in on this. Um, the Inquirers and Philly.com's uh, Sue Snyder um, reported Tuesday that Temple University's Board of Trustees is getting ready to sack its president. And part of the reason After he canned the provost, uh, what the provost? Yeah, he canned the provost, and now they're going to they're going to can the president and. Uh, along with that, Temple, part of the reason, the, the main reason that they're going to fire him is because he's basically um, taken what was a $9 million, was it $9 million or $9 billion? I'm looking on this, a million. On $9 million, yeah, 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 $9 million, million. Uh, dollar deficit and turned it into a $22 million deficit. And Temple is now, has already announced that it's going to raise tuition, its tuition rates by 2.8%. Um, all the while finding the pocket change available of $250,000. More for spending on the football stadium yeah, from to, the to university's com- part. Yeah, to, to look into building a football stadium. And this is a, a topic that Murph in particular and I have written about. It's a topic we've talked about before. Murph, the floor is yours. Godspeed. Yeah, I mean, look, the discouraging thing, well, let's start here. Because this is, uh, you know, I've, I've kind of tried to stay away from the Penn State stuff uh, just because it's, I don't need to read any more about it necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, going to change my opinion. But the thing that you see, like, and this has always been why I've been an extremist when it comes to extremist when it comes to college sports. And I think, frankly, um, in a rational world, they should not exist. And 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 that's the only logical conclusion you can come to once you start following all the ifs and thens um, and where it leads. And I think anybody who ignores that does so just based on the fact that it's always been that way and it's such college sports are such an ingrained part of our society and when i say college sports i mean revenue sports essentially basketball and football um 
there's absolutely no reason why a college should be raising tuition while at the same time um, putting money into a football stadium. And, and people will say, the reason why this connects to Penn State is because the, the people defend it blindly. Yep. Uh, you know, and, the pe- and it's the people that it hurts that defend it blindly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they do so, and, and it's really, frankly, discouraging. And, and, I, and you know, I don't want to take it too deep, but it's very much a reflection of what's going on in the country uh, and in the world. I mean, it's people voting against their self-interest out of emotion. I mean, I have have Temple Temple students throughout last fall tell me that they gladly, you know, I asked, in one of my columns I asked, you know, know, take a poll, they should walk around campus and ask each Temple student for 500 bucks cash um, so that the, the person can give it to the sports department. And I guarantee nobody would, you know, very few students would agree to do that, but that's what they do with these athletic seats. Right. Um, it's just for some reason. And, and, you know, I've learned in, in, in the meantime that, that this is the whole reason Temple hired Theobald to begin with. He, he was regarded as quote, a college finance expert, which is essentially. <laughs> Look, let, and, and their athletic department from the big 10. What the finance experts have done over these last 10 years has, is game the system and, and take money from students, from, from the feds, and throw them into their own coffers. And we've got these gleaming palaces on these college campuses. And then we've got kids who are living at home until they're 35 years old, so they can't pay for it. And yet the kids say they would gladly continue paying for it as long as they can go to a football game on campus eight times a year. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it is in some level right, insane. A, that might have been sensible. You know, I don't know if you can actually string that together in a linear thought, Oh, I can't. I, can. I absolutely can. Go ahead, John. And, and Mike, I'm going to put this question to you, if only because Dave and I are a little closer in age to each other than and you're Gee, thanks. If that's not a sign, when Dave talks about the number of Temple kids who wrote to him saying they'd be willing to fork over more money for the stadium stuff, if that's not a sign of how Temple has changed in the last few years, I don't know what is. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a big part. I think, look, I think part of what, this is a debate that's kind of, te- that's, in a way, almost totally Temple-centric in the sense that Temple had an identity for a long, long time as the as Philadelphia's city university and that there, the identity was the urban public university experience. And so in that regard, the idea of having a football campus, a football stadium on campus never entered the equation, never entered their thinking for a long time. It was like, yeah, we have football, and yeah, it's not very good, but that's okay in a way because that's not who Temple is supposed to be. That's changed radically, I think, over the last 10 to 15 years as the landscape of college has changed. And it's one thing to build the dorms that they've built and the retail that they've built, which is spectacular and so on and all that. That's it's even one thing to put the Leacora center on campus, but the, and correct me if I'm wrong, but for as long in my life as I followed temple basketball, even when I was growing up in DC, it's been a school where people who, if we are to be really blunt about it, were not of the same economic means, right. As went to all of the private schools in the region. Sure. Could get there and have a strong academic experience and be lifted up because of it. Yeah, that was the entire, no matter what you thought of John Cheney, um, as a coach, as a person, whatever, that was the entire predicate of his philosophy of recruiting, was right. that I'm going to bring in a kid who nobody else will take a chance on, and I'll put him in an educational environment and put the ball in his court, literally and figuratively. He can come and try to play basketball for me, and he can come to try to get an education. And if he doesn't show up to class or he can't cut it academically or doesn't have the desire to do it, then okay, but at least I gave him a chance. Um, what they're doing now, I think, and, and Murph, jump in at any time, is they're basically playing this, trying to play the same game that everybody else is, which is the college arms race, which is build a football stadium, build better dorms, and yeah, it's, they, they probably needed better dorms and better facilities, but turn, turn it into a gleaming jewel within North Philadelphia and we'll bring in kids who wouldn't have considered Temple in the past. Ahead, only served them to further drive Right. Yeah. Yeah. Look, this is why this is why it relates to Penn State. It relates to Penn State on abstract because Penn State, for, for you know, I can I, all these Penn State kids, these, these Penn State Kool Aid drinkers, 
will, will sit there and argue to their blue in the face that football is only a part of Penn State's identity, that it's the media's fault that football is blown up the way it is, that the media doesn't write about all the, you know, all the research studies they do, that the media doesn't write about their agricultural sciences program, that the media doesn't write about their engineering students. And they will argue all of this while they are wearing Penn State football shirts. <laughs> I don't, you don't see these students walking around with Penn State engineering shirts that say, do the roar. They, are not, they do not stand outside of the agricultural sciences building yelling, we are Penn State, and doing whatever that fake Nittany Lion roar is that goes over the loudspeaker. <laughs> very, that's a very good impression of it. That's good. And, and, and the reason they don't do it is because Penn State, you know, whether, whether you know, it was through inertia or through a conscious effort over the last 30 years has made football their identity and the number one identity of that university. And when you hear when you when you say the words Penn State to anybody else around the country, the first thing they think of when they hear the words Penn State are Joe. I mean, this is before the Sandusky thing. Now, the first thing they would think of is Joe Paterno and the football team and Temple. You know, and and I think again, I don't want to get into the whole. You know, uh, you know, they reaped what they sowed with the Sandusky thing. Let's just. Leave it at the fact that they, they, they either they did not consciously try to avoid making football their identity. Well, guess what? When you do that, other people judge you on that identity. And with Temple, it, it seems as if they're, they're, they want that identity. And it's just so at odds with the educational mission. Uh, I mean, nowhere else in the world, it, you know, nowhere else in the world is it like this. It, 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 these universities are supposed to be places where kids go to learn skills, to learn knowledge, to develop breadth in their character. And we're turning them into fun lands, play palaces, with football stadiums where the only thing that matters is whether the team won on Saturday. And if the team won on Saturday, nobody cares what they did in class. I mean, why do you want that as your identity? Why do you want that as as their identity? Not even mentioning the fact that it's a fool's errand for them to even pursue that because we'll never have it as their identity. It reinforced the fact, that, the fact yeah. that this is a priority, and not just the field, but at the board. The board approved all this. Yeah, they're basically they're basically firing Theobald because he didn't carry out their misguided plan as well as they would have liked. It, it reinforces a notion to me. You know what it is? You know what? I'm going to go. I'm going to go and, and piss off all the baby swimmers as I did. But it's honestly, it's, it's the reason why that generation is destroying this country. I mean, we're we're, we're they're, they're building the stadium so that these 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 boosters who have everything else in their life, foreseeable who have everything else in his life. Can, can be the man, like Ken Starr was the man, and could walk around the football field on Saturday morning and point at everybody and say, hey, look at us. We gotta, you know, they can't afford to buy post systems, so they build post systems for themselves so they can sit in their luxury boxes and they can eat their shrimp cocktail and they can feel like bigwigs. And it's, it's taking money out of the, the future generation by, by building all of these fees in, in, into these student loans and the debt that they're being saddled with. And it's going to these pockets of these guys who, who, who are pretty much in fantasy camps with these college sports teams. And I, it, it's really frustrating that, that the kids who are being stolen from don't understand it. Go ahead, John. I'll, I'll, I've had this critique of... No, I, John's going to... I just yeah. said, go ahead, John. I mean, does that make sense? Like, oh, yeah. Like, no, I no, it absolutely does. That was a lot of what I was going to say. The whole thing is a Ponzi scheme. And, I, you know, I don't, it's like Cutco knives. Like, I, it's just... It's amazing. And, 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 and it keeps blowing up. I mean... You write about Baylor and how Baylor's in that football, and Penn State ends up, you know, getting fired because of football. You write about Temple and how they shouldn't be fired because of football, and the field ends up getting fired. Penn State, it's like, dude, at what point are people going to realize that 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 building a revenue sports program that prioritizes winning above everything else, and then leading your flock of students into believing and and submitting and throwing themselves before that football team and, and making the, the football team their identity is completely at odds with the educational mission. I'm going to cut you. I, I, can I cut you off there, Dave? Yeah. Because I want to put, I want to amend one thing you just said, which is, I don't think the pursuit is of winning. I think the pursuit is of making money, which in turn goes into the administrator's I pockets. I don't even think it's money. I think it's prestige. Well, like, I think it's, I, I they're think the same uh, thing. They're the same thing to me. And the, the, the one that I'm really going to point to, not only Temple is Rutgers. Moving to the big 10, 
clearing out all of these debts that they've had and sitting pretty for the next 40 years or whatever is whether they win a football game at all. And that that to me, look, I can I can that, I mean, that, we, yeah. we could go beyond it, too. I mean, you can you can go to, you know, just I mean, take take football, take sports out of it. You go to I mean, this is happening. The, the, I, I feel like, you know, the athletics question it accelerates a process that's already taking place whether you have an elite, whether a university has an elite athletic program or not. Um, you know, it's happening at Harvard. It's happening at Boston University. It's happening at LaSalle University. It's happening everywhere where the cost of the education yes. is so far outstripping the, the value that you're going to gain from it after you finish it. You know, I mean, think about the job you would have to get right out of being an undergrad. You complete your undergrad degree. Think how much you'd have to get paid to not have to take right. out student loans. And I, will, I will say this. It's funny you mentioned Harvard because they're actually, for as much money as goes around that campus, they're one of the best schools in the country when it comes to the floor at which all the financial aid money is granted instead of loans. Mm-hmm. But to, to bring it back to Temple for a second, what I was going to say a moment ago, I don't think it's a coincidence, and I've said this before to a lot of people, not on the show, but I've said it before. I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of the administrators at Temple right now, both in terms of the university as a whole and the athletic department specifically, have Big Ten backgrounds. Of course it's not. That This is what they wanted. They set, you know, as Murph said, this is the setup they wanted. They were going to chase this this golden calf, uh, you know, until they caught it. And, you know, look at where they are. I mean, you know, I, they're spending $250,000, which is a drop in the bucket of their budget to explore the possibility of a football stadium. But but in a way, that's the point that they, right. you know, right. yeah, it is a drop in the bucket, but it's a drop in the bucket here and it's a drop in the bucket there. And, and as long as it's, it's you're throwing money away on something that isn't going to work, what, what are you going to do to recoup those funds? Where are you going to go? You're going to go to basically your customer base. And as Murph said, the customer base is more than willing to hand over its money. It's like, you know, it's like going to see a, a televangelist. You know, yeah. and, and, the, and the, 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 the people who watch him and the people in the crowd just, you know, everybody say amen and they hand over, you know, they yeah. pass the collection. And here's, and here's the other thing. And I think that, you know, there's certainly a streak of people within the Temple fan base. And I would imagine whether they'll admit it publicly or not, the administration and the athletic department, who when you talk about where they're going to, they think they're going to the Big 12 or the ACC. And at some point, those big conferences might come back and say, eh, no, you're not. Then what? Yeah. Well, then, yeah, then I mean, that, go ahead, Murph. I mean, that, yeah, like that's that's a whole other issue, and like that all this is even besides that. The fact, like, even if the plan was, <laughs> even if they could have, even if they were destined to build a a you know Big Twelve power, I would argue that it's still you know look at Baylor. Why? Would, right. Why would because you because what ends up yeah what but, ends up but, happening but, is. What's supposed to be the tail wags the dog. Right. You, you've, you've shifted the balance of power within the university from the president being the, um, the, exactly. the, the leader to the football coach being the leader. I'm, I'm all for well, and, the dorms, the temple was built, the library, the green spaces, the retail, all of that. The one place where I draw the line is the football stadium. Yeah, and it's it shifted. The thing is, it's shifted the president's job himself from, you know, academic from a president of an academic university in charge of preparing this country's next generation of thinkers and doers um, to a to the owner slash general manager of a professional sports franchise yeah and i mean look there was a nine million deficit last year and you see it the board should not the board is just as complicit in all this as, as yeah as board is. i mean this admission that there was even a nine million dollar deficit a year ago is just astonishing to me. That that there was, they knew they had a deficit, they knew they had a problem, and they focused all their attention on on, on ramming this football project through. Um, you know, like that's amazing to me. Like that that's the president's job is to address that deficit, not to address the football state. Uh, I think, I think... That's, that's just indicative of what. This, this is the corrupting influence of, of college sports. And it's why, to me, like, the only effort is you have to get rid of all of it. Because as long as they're all Big Ten college sports, with the way this country glorifies sports, uh, you know, that's going to be where, you know, prestige and the, the search for prestige and 
uh, you know, even popular opinion pushes these boards and these presidents. They're, they're, you know, they don't get attaboyed for, you know, test scores. You know, they don't, they don't get, you know, people don't come up to them at cocktail parties and, and tell war stories, you know, about the, you know, their investment in the engineering department. You know, they come up to Neil Theobald is the BMOC at cocktail parties when Temple is beating Notre Dame. Um, you know, that's when he feels like a hero. Uh, that's why people know who Neil Theobald is. You know, his, his, pub, his, his public image, you know, he, he, his Q rating is far higher now, um, you know, than it was a year ago, and that's all because of the Temple football program, not because of this in, his other infrastructure investments on campus. Um, look, like, these are the basic human uh, emotions that we're talking about, basic human motivators. I mean, if you have something like sports on your college campus, it is going to end up becoming the thing that everybody prioritizes because it is the thing that our society prioritizes. I think that's a good place to end. But, yeah. Uh, uh, now that we uh, now yeah, that right. now that we spent an hour talking about <laughs> sports, <laughs> well, it's, it's you know I I just I can't help thinking this too, and this is something that the three of us have discussed before. I can make a perfectly rational case that LaSalle needs to build a new basketball arena but nothing on the scale of what Temple's doing. Well, but all right, so what is the end game there? Like is it going to make is it going to make the campus a happier place? Like I mean, you could take right, a place. Why yes, and here's yes. Why do they need to build a new arena? They don't build the one they have. But yes, and here's why. Because I'm going to I'll take what I didn't well, it's not just basketball arena, but you look at what Drexel did with the with the Dask Alaska ah, the DAC. But I've been practicing and before you even go there before you even go there you're you're looking at athletic you're looking at LaSalle in the arena in a vacuum I mean LaSalle has you know LaSalle has problems financially right now yes. for reasons that go beyond yes. just the basketball arena I know. and that I would argue are are infinitely more important they are. than the basketball but arena I, I view it as what this is what I'm getting to when I looked at what Drexel did where when they built something they built a facility that was clearly signaled to be used by everybody on the campus as fitness study halls and lots of other things. Mm -hmm. That's my point, that I can justify that. I mean, I, th I think... Yeah, yeah, like Mike said, in a vacuum, but you can't justify it. Like, like It's a perfectly good basketball gym. It's a perfect... You know, I played intramurals in that basketball gym. You know, I rarely went to basketball games in that basketball gym. Uh, I believe they've had graduation in that basketball gym. They have classrooms in that basketball gym. You know, the only the only argument for building a new one would be because it will it will further their athletic mission, and that's the problem. Because the South got tons of issues right now that, that that have nothing to do with their athletic mission. I mean, look, I look I'm, I look at this entire thing from a utilitarian standpoint. What benefits most people? The most amount of what benefits? What gives the most benefit to the most amount of people? And there's no way that sports, other than this abstract pride that people take, um, there's no way it benefits us. It, it, there's no way it benefits everybody from a dollars and cents academic mission standpoint. I mean, and again, I would argue that, that this pride that everybody points to, that somehow still seems to exist at, at colleges that don't have uh, scholarship athletics, I would argue that this pride ends up driving up tuition costs because because kids because it creates an artificial demand for the, the, the supposedly academic services of, of these institutions when kids, you know, these, these impulsive high school kids, you know, essentially sign their lives away so that they can, you know, go to the cool school that has football and, and where they can, you know, drink in the parking lot on Saturdays. Yeah, I think... the place that will best prepare them um, to be a functioning member of society and will, will best prepare their finances to, to sustain themselves in that society. Yeah, I think I think a place like LaSalle offers kind of an, an interesting case study in that regard because I do think that there was a spike in there was a spike in alumni take take LaSalle's run of the Sweet Sixteen in twenty thirteen, okay? And and Murph and I have discussed this before, Murph's written about this before, that it, it did nothing appreciably to help the basketball program in any regard. It did nothing at all to salvage um, the financial problems that the university found itself, in which case it had to lay off, you know, got a new president, had to lay off 23 administrators and employees, and that sort of thing. Nothing about the Sweet 16 and getting to the getting to the round of 16 and losing to Wichita State did anything to stem that tide. But there was an intangible, if appreciable, uptick in um, alumni interest, alumni coming back to campus, 
you saw it. In, I was at the homecomings, you know, the events afterwards. Um, how that played out financially to benefit the university, I don't know. But I do. Th- but it is, I think, a mistake to look at a place like LaSalle in that sort of vacuum. I don't think anybody is going to LaSalle or St. Joe's or, you know, um, I don't know, Boston University necessarily for one of its sports teams no. to the exclusion of any other place like right. like Murph is talking about with respect to Penn State, right. like people in Kentucky are talking about with respect to Kentucky's basketball program or Louisville's basketball program. Um, but by the same token, there's nothing LaSalle could do from an athletic standpoint that would mitigate any of the problems no, but that, that it has. And, and, and But that gets back to what we're talking about with Temple, which is Temple seem, seems to be acting as if a football stadium and building a great football program will be a cure-all. Right. That it'll get alumni, you know, we'll get students who otherwise wouldn't come and they'll feel the sense of pride and they'll give us more money and everything will be hunky-dory. And that's that's a mistake. That's well, a total which mistake. Is, which is why I put it in the Drexel context. Because what they're doing is has little to nothing to do with academics. With athletics, sorry. What they're doing has little to nothing to do with athletics in terms of the construction that's going on in Drexel's campus right now, the buildings they're building, the dorms, the facilities, the retail, and so but it's still LaSalle but doesn't have the money to do that. I understand that. But that they need, LaSalle does need to get kids to come there right now because right. they're not getting enough of them. Right. And there is... They're not getting what? They're not getting enough of them. Of students? Period. Yeah. Right. Well, but, but I guess that's, you know, it's kind of a counterfactual to your whole argument. I mean... LaSalle was never going to, LaSalle peaked when it went to the Sweet 16. And all we heard is bad news since then. I mean, if there was, if, if, you know, shouldn't student enrollment, by your logic, shouldn't student enrollment be up right now? It's actually going to be, I was actually on campus yesterday, Murph, on Tuesday, uh, doing mm-hmm. some research for a story. They're anticipating an uptick in the freshman, the incoming freshman class for whatever that's worth. You know, yeah, like, yeah, like but, 100. Then, again, like there's so many. I mean, this college, the college thing is such a, such a, such a scheme. Um, I mean, like, like okay, there's an uptick in freshman class, but is did that come as, as a result of lowering your academic standards? Right. Or did that come right. Because, I don't know. You know. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 so hard. It, look, I've been. I went to staff and you know, the thing you have to do is you have to. You know, I mean, you have to weigh whatever donations there were. You have to weigh it over. You know, whatever extra years they gave and dollars they gave to basketball. The, the problem is you need to do. What, I don't know what's going on today. But when you talk about this, um, you know, funding recreational opportunities for students and funding uh, athletic facilities that benefit the field. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes. But my, my, this, this, this is why I, I contrasted it in this way. If it's a facility does it? that does benefit the many on campus in the context of an overall development thing, which is what Drexel is doing. I'm much more comfortable with that than building a football stadium on Temple's campus that is for the benefit of the few. That's my point. Yeah. I mean, look, it, it's, here's the thing. It, it even goes to high school to a certain extent. I mean, you, you know, so I play, I play, I play pickup beats and, and we play at a local high school, a buddy of mine, and, 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 and you know, we're taught, we, we, long story short, we can't be in the school during the summer. Um, but the fact is, when you look at these high school gyms, and every but every high school has a gym, but but how often we were talking about this? How often are they actually used? And think about how much more. I mean, we, I had a huge gym in high school, a huge new, you know, three full basketball court gym, bigger than Hayden Center uh, at Pocono Mountain High School. The money that was poured into it, um, yeah, it served a lot of purpose for the students. But when you think about how often it's, it's that's what I'm talking about when, it, when you're talking about a million dollars spent on the few rather than the many. I mean, you know, a college is building a basketball arena so that it can be used for principally 40 nights a year by 10 students, you know? Um, that's a lot different from building a recreation center that can be used every night of the year by every student. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I mean, and like, just to me, it's like, it, there's, such, there's such structure, and this gets way beyond, you know, temple, but like, there's just such serious structural concerns when it, you know, part of the problem too, with the whole notion of, yeah, you know, I won't, I will not doubt that, that 
sports play a huge had a huge marketing impact on on uh, colleges and universities. But so much of the money that it does generate ends up being poured back into the athletic yes. department. And not yes. Yes. Uh, I mean, you look at. I remember touring. You know, when I was down, I, I worked down south in Myrtle Beach, and you know, I was walking around Clemson. It was either Clemson or South Carolina. But, but everywhere you looked, there were new athletic facilities going up. And somebody I was talking to, they're like, "Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a, you know, I guess there's a bylaw in the budget covering the budget that, you know, any excess money at the end of the year in athletics has to be poured back in the facility. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's just, it's like, it's just silly. You know, I mean, it's, it's how does that, how does that serve the mission that, you know, these federal loan dollars, you know, that these grants that, um, you know, this tax exempt status was designed to foster to benefit the country. You know, I mean, maybe everyone's, maybe we're all just the Romans. You know, I mean, you look back <laughs> and you laugh at them, um, but like we're doing the same stuff. Yeah. All right. Well, look, this was basically. Anyway, have a good uh, Wednesday. <laughs> this is basically the last podcast we're going to do before the Eagles become relevant again. So um, now that we've got all got our uh, complaints about the Americans high, America's higher education system off our chest, next week we will return and complain about Sam Bradford and Doug Peterson and Carson Wentz and the Eagles' lousy linebackers and secondary. So uh, for Dave Murphy, for John Tannenwald, I'm Mike Sealski. Going back to his attempted broadcast early voice, we'll see you next week. Courage. Yeah.